Hello and welcome to The Personhood Project. I'm your host, Aaron Tyler Hand. In this podcast, we explore poetry's ability to provide the tools necessary to process trauma, lead towards personal growth, and help reduce recidivism in the carceral system. If these topics are of interest to you, we ask that you follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you are currently listening. Today, we are joined by Kate Smeisner. She is the Director of Prison and Justice Writing at PIN America, a nonprofit organization that works to defend and celebrate free expression in the United States and worldwide through the advancement of literature and human rights. Outside of her work at PIN America, she is also a poet with collections such as Let It Die Hungry and The Letter All Your Friends Have Written You. She edited the book The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. She is a musician and hosts a podcast called Flowers for Linda. Thank you so much for making time to sit down with me. Oh, my pleasure. And I, I, uh, I would say musician's a bit of a stretch, but I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, you make music and I mean, in the world we live in, you, I don't know, you kind of stack up the things you do and, you know, celebrate your craft and your art artistry. So yeah, definitely. I would say musician. Okay. I'll take it. I, li- I listened to your music on Spotify and it was beautiful. So I, I count that as musician. <laughs> Wow, you're one of the five people who have. I'm so honored. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> I mean, that's a small but mighty list, I'm sure. Thank you. Uh, kind of as the listeners heard here, you, you're much like me, a spinner of many plates. Um, so I kind of like unpack some of those with you, if you don't mind. Um, let's start with your work at PIN America. Can you describe what you do as director of prison and justice writing? Sure. Uh, Well, I oversee a 50-year running program, one of the earliest arts and corrections, so to speak, projects that sprung to being uh, inspired by the Attica Uprising, uh, a fact that I'm very proud of, a proud and part of the lineage of. Uh, So when I came on about four and a half years ago, the project had been running uh, in a couple of different lanes. There was the prison writing contest, which we have been running for all of that time and still currently we get about 2,000 submissions from across the country every year. We award across six categories of writing, uh, cash prizes, publication, and we stage public readings of the winning work every year. Um, Additionally, we have a long-running mentor program that pairs working writers behind the walls with writers, uh, working writers on the outside with writers behind the walls, some working writers, some hobbyists, and uh, for, for, for coaching and, and mentorship around their personal goals with their writing, which can obviously run the gamut from professionalization, publication to, you know, emotional expression. And then lastly, w- what I took over was uh, one of the pillars was this handbook for writers in prison, that it was a guidebook that was sent to thousands and thousands of people in prison over the past number of years, 10, 20 years. And that's, that's the book that I rewrote, re-edited to become the sense of that creators. So in my role, part of it is taking these historic programs, bringing them into the modern era, shaping them, codifying them, making sure they run smoothly. I have a team of six uh, additional employees besides me that uh, help make this incredible work move. And, uh, and, and when I came on, I really was able to be part of this organization because of the Writing for Justice Fellowship, which is a fellowship that awards writers, both with and without justice involvement, to write high-level works uh, that illuminate something connected to mass incarceration, often an under-examined aspect of it. Um, this provides high-level stipends and mentorship and all kinds of support for the writers involved. It's a highly competitive process. 
And then from there, I came on and I had these projects to, to, to move forward with. And I also had my own ideas about what to do. So we published this book. We got 75,000 copies funded to disseminate in prisons across the U.S. for free. We're embarking on a couple of major projects right now that serve as connected connections and pub publishing pipelines for writers that are in prison, uh, as well as self-directed writing collectives in prison that don't necessarily need to rely on an outside facilitator to, um, to happen behind the walls. So there's this massive spread. So what do I do? I'm, I'm, I, I oversee the team. <laughs> I get to give them feedback and nurture their innovative ideas. I write a lot of grants to get money to do these projects. Uh, and I, I get to serve as really the intermediary between a lot of different organizations, people, volunteer groups, um, and, and different actors in the system in order to create blueprints and toolkits that we hope that the rest of the country can pick up and utilize in their local community. Wow, that's expansive and you're doing such amazing work, especially like keeping these programs running for, you say, over 50 years, and you're still modernizing them so that they can keep going and keep going, which is really important work. Um, you mentioned running the the writing contest. I'm hoping you could speak on that a little more because part of our podcast, like we the the incarcerated writers we work with they they listen to the podcast afterward obviously because they're excited they hear their poems read and things like that so if they want to send some poems to the contest i'm hoping you could speak a little on that so they could you know get more information about it sure well uh every year we the cutoff for submitting is september 1st so there's still time but even if you don't make that deadline it will roll over into the next season we have a volunteer committee of about 50 volunteers who are working writers who deliberate and judge. And as everybody probably knows, it's a really subjective process. Obviously, it's mm -hmm. taste, it's content, it's what the group determines they like together, they battle it out. There's no guarantees, obviously. We publish about 30 pieces a year out of thousands that we receive. Uh, we accept up to 20 pages of poetry. Um, I think up to 20 pages of other genres as well. The genres are nonfiction, which is two categories, memoir and essay writing. There is a uh, fiction category, poetry, drama, which is play and movie scripts. Um, and it, there's also um, a category for more emerging writers that show promise called the Fielding Dawson Award. It creates a whole other category. And, uh, and we give prizes from first place to third place, as well as honorable mentions in each category. What happens if you win, I'm really excited to tell you because this year we're embarking on our fifth print anthology. When I first came here, we published all the winning work online, which we still do. So family and friends ostensibly you know, read the work of their loved one. However, the person who actually won the award doesn't have access to the internet. So mm -hmm. they had no idea what it really meant to win the contest, except for that it's kind of has a buzz around a lot of prison settings. But they, they thought, you know, who else is winning? Uh, what does my work sit next to? Does this even, like, where does it go? You know, can you imagine winning an award sitting in the dark around what it really means? Yeah, exactly. So one of the first things we implemented, my colleague Robbie and I, was um, we, because I have a graphic design degree and Robbie has graphic design skills, we just in-house, without any funding, said, we're going to put this together. And so now we have a set series of books that we do every year that has a professional layout, 
beautifully designed cover, often visual art in different partnerships we do, sometimes with incarcerated artists, sometimes not. We illustrate the pieces, we get blurbed by famous writers, we put their bios in the back of the book. So all of a sudden, people are able to see what an honor it is. It is highly competitive. The work in the books are really compelling. Folks are really talented. And uh, the packaging and the aesthetic quality is also elevated. So that's a little bit about the contest. And then every year we do a, an event called Breakout, where we get um, actors and authors and friends of our program who have a bit of a name to come and stand in as readers, kind of like I'll do today on the podcast, yeah. reading the work of folks who can't be there to read their own work as a way to presence it. And then we send uh, all of this photography from the night, you know, with their names projected on the screen, with the writers, the pamphlets we make, we send kind of uh, a package of ephemera back that tries to recreate a sense of what the night was like. Oh, that's so perfect. I mean, we know working through this program on our end, like even the, the kind of the struggles of like, how do we allow them to see that like what we're doing for them is like, you know, a celebration of their work. And it's been working with the, the jails and prisons and being like, the ones that have, you know, tablets or computers for them to get on, like to, you know, go through the bureaucracy to get the podcast on those tablets so that they can actually listen to it. Because, um, you know, it's not easy. Like the main goal is like their families can hear, they can feel the celebration of their work, which sounds like exactly what you were doing. Like, how can you make them understand the prestige of what's going on? And it sounds like you're, you're doing so much work to lay that out. I really appreciate what all you are doing. And a print issue is something we've kind of thought about as well. It's like we want to get it in their hands so they can, you know, see their work and maybe people talk about their work, you know, in a physical issue. So that's great that you guys are doing that physical issue already. Yeah, I, I just as an artist and writer myself could, can't imagine being in a position where I get awarded something or my work is published and I have no idea of the context, you know, and I think – uh, for other folks and you know, doing the work we do, like you, you know, we instantly have an understanding of that. But there's also something we get to do in teaching the outside community about the value of the work behind the walls. You should care about this work, whether or not you have a connection to mass incarceration, because you might discover an amazing writer. And through that, we also get to open up conversations about mass incarceration. We get to also really, I hate the word humanize people. Like, I think it's like a underselling like that's that's if that's what we're doing we're not doing enough yeah but it does really i think um give a much clearer sense of the talent and humanity and curiosity that exists behind the walls that many people you know don't give much thought or attention to because it's hidden yeah i mean that's kind of the the mindset that we went into with this podcast of like shedding some light on the hidden talent as well as just like getting writers that are incarcerated a connection to a larger writing community like there are people out there that might not have that connection and we want to you know be some sort of bridge that can help pull them together so um, I do want to talk about the sentences that create us and kind of how it came about and how the authors found their way inside of it can you talk about that book for me yeah absolutely well like I mentioned we had this handbook project that I really respected it when I used to teach inside prisons. When that was that was what I did before I came here. Now I just sit in the office all day. But when I used to go inside prisons, I would order the book for my students. I was really grateful for it, but it was essentially like a primer on each creative writing genre, how to how to write a blues poem, for example, how to format a screenplay. 
And after my first year on the job and reading through the stacks and stacks of mail we get every day, I started to realize that people weren't just interested in the craft and the mechanics of how one writes, but really interested in what does it mean to be a writer? And obviously there was no way to send this back. You know, we have a couple of different forms, letters we send back to people with common requests. There was no way to create a form letter around some of these much more philosophical, um, you know, questions. So what I did was I started to think about the book as a resource that would really answer all of these questions in one place, but would do it through personal firsthand essays that would make for a really compelling read. I wanted people to be able to mark up the book, pass it, expand their minds, think about a different path, maybe even be humble a little bit in their aspirations because <laughs> there's a lot of fallacy and false ideas about, you know, becoming a bestseller from prison mm-hmm. that, you know, wouldn't we all like that dream, but yeah. even out here, it's very hard to get, <laughs> right? There's not, there's not one path to getting an agent. There's not one path to getting published. So I wanted a book that could really meet people where they were at in so many different ways. Somebody who was brand new to writing could come and get inspired to write for the first time. And somebody who was really accomplished could figure out how to take their work further. So I thought about the book having four sections, essentially. The first section would be really looking at that craft. So personal essays mixed with instruction that dove deep into poetry, nonfiction memoir, journalism, drama, screenwriting, editing, grammar, punctuation, sort of the pillars of writing, right? Mm -hmm. And many of these essays, you know, go into the mechanics, but also offer writing prompts. So it's a real mix. It's not just a, it's not boring. It's not dry. They start off in a little personal narrative and they unfold into instruction because many of the authors in the book have lived experience that they're talking about. They've been to prison themselves. The second section is called Crafting a Writer's Life, I think, something like that. I don't have the book next to me, of course. Uh, and, <laughs> that's okay. And that that's like my favorite section in the book. That's where I got to essentially call on all of these writers that I'd worked with and I understood had something special to offer. So, you know, I'm talking to Spoon Jackson about his mentor, Judith Tannenbaum, and said, you know, well, how did you make all these amazing connections through the Wall School? You have, like, orchestras performing your work. You have... Uh, you know, Ani DeFranco, who was my favorite musician when I was a teenager, uh, collaborating with you on a song. Like, how did you do all this? And, and we rewound it back to Judith, his mentor, who taught a poetry class in the prison he was in many, many years ago. And he said, well, you know, we just connected. It was just real. And I said, Spoon, come on. We got to codify this. Did you ask Judith to uh, do extra favors for you outside <laughs> of just writing? He said, no, I would never do that. It was all about the writing. I had to come with a sense of respect. I said, that's the kind of thing that we need to put in as a tip. And that became the essay, Collaborating Through the Walls, how to do it really ethically. Because a lot of folks in prison are really siphoned off from from relationship Mm -hmm. and need a little coaching. How do you actually develop um, productive and equitable artistic collaboration with folks that aren't aren't inside of you? other essays in that chapter include, you know, copyright is a question we get a lot about. So there's an essay on copyright. There's an essay on how I uh, wrote and ordered my award-winning chapbook of poetry from prison, how I wrote and staged a play in prison, um, how I published from prison, how to write a cover letter, uh, all kinds of different entry points into 
the writer's life and creating one. Mm-hmm. And the, the third chapter is the third section is called on building writing community. And you asked how I determined who would be in the book, and uh, this is this is one of one way to think about it. So. I, in 2018, was brought to a series of Minnesota prisons through the Minnesota, I always want to say Minneapolis because that's where it's located, Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. And many of their authors have won our contest routinely. They just have an amazing series of programs and instructors and a lot of talent. And one of the prisons I visited, an author named Zeke Kaliagiri, who just recently came home after decades inside, uh, I knew his work because I was a fan. I had read it. I would, like, he'd won the contest over the years. He was in our archives. And he was like, okay, Pen America, I don't want to know about you. I want to tell you about our writing collective that we founded when nobody was coming to the prisons. And I knew immediately, that was the first idea for the first essay in the book that I had. I said, I want Zeke to write about how you build a writing collective. And that became the opening to a section that includes uh, instruction on storytelling, writing storytelling circles, how to facilitate writing, uh, a series of in-depth writing prompts from longtime prison educators that can be used in a group setting or individually. And um, it closes on, a, on an essay, on an epilogue uh, that Randall Horton wrote, a poet, around coming home and finding community uh, after incarceration, writing community. And the, and the back end of the book is just a whole bunch of resources, places to get published, things you can get for free if you're in prison, further books to study, et cetera. So it's this really massive, soaked and saturated book of some of the preeminent writers that have been working through the walls. So often people who've accomplished things that are really incredible and unusual and unlikely telling the story of how they made that happen. Yeah, I was lucky enough to gain a copy at AWP and just reading through it between now and then just, you know, obviously, because I want to learn more and I want to help, you know, inspire the people we work with in our program and just understanding. And I feel like there was so much information in there that was just like so well thought out and so well crafted that it was just like, this book kind of goes beyond just like someone in a carceral system wanting to read this and learn and more like, as anyone, myself, anyone could gain information and like, learn from that book so yeah thank you for putting that together yeah my pleasure it was it was i don't even know how it happened looking back on it but i'm very proud um i will say one of the things i love to hear is that there's a number of college professors who told me they're teaching the book in their writing classrooms that have nothing to do with prison or mass incarceration um michelle alexander said it's one of the best books on writing she's ever read we have gotten a few reviews that, that talk about that as well being one of the best craft books there is and what excites me about that is, is that it is mostly written by people with justice involvement. Mm-hmm. So that kind of power dynamic swap of people who have no relationship to prison, learning writing, and the craft of writing through people in prison is just a wonderful byproduct of this uh, you know, publication. And I had a sense that we didn't want to just self-publish it and send it to prisons. My sense was that the book was going to be really compelling. And it had some audience, you know, outside of prison. So that's why we got an actual publisher. Haymarket Books published it. We have a history of amazing, radical publishing. I'm very proud to be part of their family. Um, yeah, definitely shout out Haymarket. They're they're an amazing publisher. They put out some really great books. Yes, it was thrilling to see um, Angela Davis's autobiography next to our book, which came <laughs> out within a week of each other all over social media. I, I yeah. was... Um, 
I was, uh, I was my, the 15 year old in me was like very impressed <laughs> with the 38 year old me. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, being at that young age and just thinking about like, Oh, I could be next to this person one day. You're like, what are you talking about? That was never going to happen. And then seeing it, you know, yeah, that's great. <laughs> There's no easy way to transition, but I want to talk about your music a little bit as well. Um, mostly because a lot of the writers we work with, um, in our classrooms, they, their idea of like what poetry is or what like writing should be comes from music. Like they have access to music. They listen to music. They're a lot often inspired by music. So as someone, your music kind of like, um, just for listeners who aren't familiar, kind of like spoken wordy poetry, almost like kind of music. Uh, but I'm hoping you could kind of talk about, crafting music like writing lyrics for music versus kind of writing poetry because you also are a poet you have published poetry books so just kind of like thinking about hey my brain wants to write this kind of piece versus write this kind of piece um i like to help people differentiate we've talked about in past podcasts like um writing nonfiction versus writing poetry so just someone sitting down to the page, help them understand, like, what do I want to write and how can I differentiate? Yeah, that's a great question, Aaron. I, I think um, probably real musicians would tell you different things. Like my cousin is a singer-songwriter, you know, plays piano and guitar amazingly and also writes his own lyrics. And one of his tricks is that he takes Shel Silverstein poems, writes the melody to them, and then changes the words later, which is something I've always loved. I don't write my own music, I work with producers. So, and my album came out, oh my God, like over 10 years ago now. And <laughs> I, I may or may not be secretly working on a music project right now. Oh, I hope that's so. That's <laughs> a little different and maybe has like, maybe more singing and rapping, but I, I we can't, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> so um, thinking about that album from 2010, which you're right, has some singing on it. Certainly there's a couple of songs that are more structured, like traditional songs, but many of them are, landscapey kind of taking a hip-hop r&b soul influence and stretching it to be uh like almost mini movies i would say mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know how, how to quite describe it but um it's more of a musical experience than an album you're singing along to and with that i gathered beats from a bunch of different producers and sat down with the beats and I actually didn't write two beats um, at the time. What I did was I went into poems that I'd already written and I started to think about, you know, started reading them over the music and seeing what made sense. And from there I started to kind of craft it into the, you know, nooks and crannies of the beat, the pockets of the beat. Um, there's a lot of internal rhyme, you know, that my music, unless it's a song song or I'm singing, like one of my songs, Black as Blood is, song with poem in the middle of it and that has a hook and everything that rhymes but the actual poems you know that just sit on top of the beat uh, are interwoven lyrically the rhythm is slant so it's kind of inside the line so mm -hmm. there's a musicality i have a real lyrical um approach to writing poetry in general you know which is just means like a lot of music in it yeah sounds so um i tried to amplify that and, and just thinking about mood and tone in matching those things up now on this project I may or may not be working on I am <laughs> writing to the music and it all rhymes and when I do that I think what makes a huge 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 difference 
what's, what is a huge difference between writing for music and writing for the page for me is simplifying. You know, mm-hmm. I can be very uh, flowery or verbose or conversational in my poems, but when I bring that into the music, it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> you have to really strip it away yeah. to the essence. And um, I, I get really playful with the music now. I mean, the stuff you listen to is like kind of intense, you know, about love and heartbreak. And now I'm in a different moment in my life where there's a lot more playfulness and joy and kind of joking around with my ego, kind of pulling on that like Kanye West. You know, <laughs> we don't like him anymore. Um, we feel for him. Yes, always. Um, pulling out some <laughs> of that, you know, uh, influence, uh, but doing it with like a lot of self-consciousness and humor. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think the difference for me is that there's there's just another element in the room. So I put the music on, I start to freestyle a little bit, I'll catch something. I mean, you know how that's the writing process, but what I'm really thinking about is how do I land the beats? How do I simplify the message? How do I, you know, there's rappers like Talib Kweli that want to put like an essay into one line, and I'm always like, chill, Talib, ship it back a little. So thinking about also... Um, the space is so much more condensed in a song, I think, than in a poem kind of has no boundaries. You can do whatever you want, but the, the constraint of the music is the beat. The boundaries are, are in place, and that kind of structure guides you, which I think is really exciting. I don't know if any of this is helpful. I am no expert. This is just how I move around and um, have fun with myself. No, honestly, like I think this is really important, and um, you kind of talk about the difference between the songwriting and the poetry, but I think what you're talking about also can be helpful when writing poetry as well, like giving yourself some constraint, thinking about mm-hmm. constraints, thinking about like if I if I make this line kind of look like this line right above it, how can I, you know, think about the words that I put in that space? I mean, that's kind of what writing in forms does, like writing in sonnets. Like if I'm only writing 10 syllables on this line, like, what words can I craft together to get across that message? So these are definitely things I, I we want to take to the classrooms and we want to show them like there is space in poetry for just kind of like writing until the paper ends and then bring it on to the next line if you need to, but also thinking about how you can constrain things and make it work. And especially a lot of these people who are coming from like a musical background, they listen to rap, they listen to hip hop, they listen to music on the radio that they have access to. Like how can they translate to work on the page and just thinking about those minute details that, you know, someone might not think about if they haven't done it before, I think is really helpful. Yeah. I like all that. I love constraints. Uh, I, I don't like writing in form. I have some friends who are really good at it. Mm-hmm. John Mario, shout out to your son. It's amazing. But I, I don't love writing in poetic form, but I do like other forms of constraint. And I think that having boundaries or guides or barriers actually can be very freeing and liberating and kind of a, you know, a, you know, the antithesis of what we think about boundaries and containers being specifically in the prison space, right? Yeah. It feels almost like, what do you mean? How? Uh, but, you know, it, it cracks open different pathways of the brain, I think, mm-hmm. when you're working within boundaries. Um, for me, if I don't like to write sonnets, but I like to write to beats. So, you know, that's my form of one of my constraints. But even things like, you know, you can use this, only these uh, three images or, um, 
you know, here's seven words you have to work into the poem creatively. Sometimes when I have writer's block, I'll just go into a word generator on the internet and get like 11 random words and weave them together. And I might not keep the whole poem, but I might get three lines that I love and then I can go off from there. So um, I think there's a feeling and idea sometimes that if you're a good writer, quote unquote, you can just sit at a blank page, poof, something amazing comes out. But I think most of us benefit from, you know, some guidance, whether it's coming from ourselves or from somebody else. I'm the exact same way. I love pulling up a word generator, finding random words and be like, how can I fit these words into, you know, lines or a poem or whatever. And, um, but yeah, it's all about kind of constraining yourself to give, like to organize because in your brain, you know, there's millions, trillions, gazillions of pathways that, you know, the writing could go. But if you kind of learn to control, it's more of a control, I would say. Yeah, you're learning to control your thoughts, control the words on the page. So it's finding some sort of control um, output, uh, controlling what comes out of you. So I think just thinking for the incarcerated writers listening, like who might not have access to word generators, like if you're looking for things to write, uh, pull up a book, anything, listen around you, random words coming out, like just write down five random words and figure out how how can you make these words fit into a poem? Just like, Yeah, source from a room, throw yeah. them in a hat, pull them out. You know, I, I often will take a book and open to a random page and kind of put my finger on a line and go, okay, that's the word, right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it analog as well. Earlier you mentioned how your older music was coming from, you know, these sadder places or whatever, and the new music's more of like this new kind of joyous uh, place. And in our kind of preliminary conversation, you had a quote saying, bringing joy to pain through creative writing, it is an under-discussed topic. So I kind of wanted to talk about the the other side of writing, not writing about the negatives and tapping into our pain, but writing about like the joy and how creative writing in general can kind of help bring out joy. Yeah. Great question. I think writing about pain is important, but I also think there's a difference between writing in your journal and then being able to take an experience and really translate it into a piece of art that might connect with an audience. Or there's some wisdom that you've developed through time. I think sometimes when things are really fresh, the writing is not that great. You know, we need time to understand our story in order to write about it. So I, I never want to say that pain, you should write about pain. Certainly I write about grief a lot. After losing my mother, I'm writing a novel that is, it has a lot of pain in it, but also a lot of humor. I think really we're looking at, you know, um, yin and yang, like the sides of life, right? Mm-hmm. We feel joy, we feel pain, we really want to distill it or fear and love, some people say. And so I'm always suspicious of things that are absent of humor or absent of pain, like on either end, right? Because it's really a, a mix and a mashup. And part of, I think part of my particular interest in writing just for my own journey, but then it ends up being for other people as well is, um, really pep talking myself. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, you know, it's how I process my own life and there's something in there that's really empowering, you know? Um, and we talk a lot about writing being empowering to use like a nineties word, um, a place where you can go and really make sense of your narrative and, and reclaim it and understand the lessons you've learned and not let it hover over you. But again, you, you talk about controlling your brain. I mean, writing towards joy is a choice. It's mm-hmm. writing towards gratitude. It's a choice to 
through the pain and through the sorrow and through the grief to keep identifying what is beautiful. And I think that's what every great leader and every great writer has ever done, you know, that they give us the kind of insights, their insights about how they moved through a period of pain or darkness and, and moved towards something that was could be made out of that. That's beautiful. And it's interesting because I was asked recently to do an exercise where I, I chose my values from this list of like 75 values. And I really thought it would be things that had to do with social justice. But I, if I was honest, I, I chose four. My values were beauty, which I was like, beauty. <laughs> but if you know me, I have flowers on my desk right now. I have a poster I designed because I'm also an illustrator on the wall. I have plants over here. Uh, I think beauty is is a, an incredible value, searching for beauty. And that I don't mean that in a traditional sense. I mean it in kind of texture, color, vibrancy, um, things that are pleasant to look at. Uh, so beauty, boldness, freedom, and creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there that there's also an identity that I was performing for a long time. I thought that being intense was better than being funny or light. <laughs> and I think it just took me in the wrong direction for many years. Not that I'm not proud of that album or proud of my earlier work, but I think when I allow myself to be playful, that's really who I am. So there's also for me a sense of like finding your voice over the years towards what you are really good at. And some people are really great at translating pain. Um, but what if you're a person who's really good at translating joy and beauty? Mm-hmm. Maybe you should lean into that. <laughs> and, and that was, it's all part of discovery. So, um, my favorite poets are always people who do that as well. Yeah. I mean, I, it all goes back to you talking about finding that balance and finding what can come out of it, uh, bringing in both sides so that you can feel the joy, but also acknowledge the pain and you're not, you're not suppressing the pain with the joy and you're not suppressing the joy with the pain. It's like you said, the yin and yang, the balance of it. Let me also put it this way. Um, I thought about, I think about this a lot in terms of the work I do on a daily basis and I'm, I've never been incarcerated, um, my close family's never been incarcerated. I really came to this work as an artist and just sort of took over my life because I, you know, wanted to work with people that were in the system after, you know, learning about it and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So for a long time, I kind of wrapped my identity, my work identity around the concept of prison. And it really wasn't my story to own. And it really wasn't a good place for me to sit, actually, because that's mm-hmm. not the charge for me to take on the pain of prison because I work with people prison. What I realized is that I had to wrap my identity in my work around the concept of liberation, because that is what all of the work is pointing towards, right? It is liberation, liberatory practice, whether communal or individual or on a societal level. And it's that kind of uh, flip of the way we think about language, and we, we think about our work, um, that there's something similar in that, is what I'm saying. When we wrap our identity around pain and oppression, so there's nothing to write about that. We need to be able to expose, uh, you know, what's ugly about society, what's not working, what's broken. There's a lot that is broken and not working, and we need witnesses, absolutely. But the trick is, I think, not to wrap your identity around your pain so deeply that you become over-identified with your trauma mm-hmm. rather than the core spirit of who you are. 
So some of these values exercises, I think, can also, as cheesy as they might feel, can also be helpful in really defining, like, what do I read that I love? What's my gift? Um, how do I allow myself to be an expansive person with multiple identities and multiple layers? Uh, I, you know, the suffering to be an artist trope, I think, is a played out one. It's an old one. And anyway, if you're an incarcerated writer, you got plenty of pain. You don't need to wrap it more around yourself. <laughs> you totally, yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I mean, I love the description that you kind of gave there of learning and sitting down and like kind of reevaluating. I think that's something that, you know, everyone needs to do, but we're not all afforded the time to do it. So the fact that you were able to and look at your life under this liberation lens, I'm sure that was, you know, kind of eye-opening for you as well. Oh, for sure. And, you know, who who does have the time? You know, you, may, you have to make it. I think that's every one of our, regardless of how tough our situation is, uh, you know, and situations get pretty dire. Yes, sadly. You gotta sadly. make time. Yeah. Uh, from there, I'd love to transition to the second part of our podcast. So for our first-time listeners, in the second part of the podcast, uh, we read poems that were inspired by our guest's work. So the larger aspect of the Personhood Project is we work to teach creative writing to incarcerated individuals here in Texas. So we take, or for this podcast, we took Kate's poems, we took them into the classroom in the jails and prisons that we work with, and then we taught them, we taught about poetry around them, and then we had the people in the classroom write poems inspired by it. Uh, so the first poem I'm hoping you could read of yours is What We Remember, and then we could talk about a poem inspired by it. My pleasure. I love to read poems, my own and others, so I like this segment of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I just, um, <clears throat> for people listening in, I just had COVID pretty um, nastily, unfortunately, so I still have like a bit of um, diminished Latin capacity and coughing happening, so bear with me. Okay, this poem, as you said, Aaron, is called What We Remember. Picture for a moment that black lab gunning down the open road, chasing towards us 1983 wheels rolling new pavement, deep country, windows down, and no other cars at all. Not one in the time before I saw the soul leap from the dog's eyes just before that terrible smack. And then what? We left it there. No one was around, and I hated to do it, but we were in this strange stretch of non-town before cell phones or common sense. I didn't think too much about the dog's keeper, if they were the kind of person who thought of themselves as an owner or companion, or if there was a child involved in the loving, maybe small or maybe nearly grown like me. It sounded cold and numb the way I didn't know details about blood or the size of the body or grief. I never had a dog. I had barely lost anyone. Maybe a golden retriever, actually. The wind pushing back his hair like a lion, soul leaping. Anya died, struck by lightning on the top of a mountain. Then that terrible call. Did we make it to the memorial after all? That part is shot memory. What happened after I reached over to turn off the heat blaring in the middle of summer? Why was it blaring in the middle of summer? That old auto funk rising from the vents, coughing into the dust of sun and the radio with no tape deck. Dan on duty, skipping between static to find something classic we could sing along to. And then the rocket spark 
of guardrail sawing the tires hip bone, the borrowed car and old hoopty that, thank God, did not belong to my parents and my friend Dan. I did see his eyes, terrified and drained of maybe soul in slow motion. Friends, do we believe in soul? When dad hit a deer the summer before, he came home crying, mourning his role in the creature's death, the weight of man, of being man. Now I was crying too. That phantom dog had to come padding up the road to offer a scapegoat, something other than my own clumsy arrogance, flashing new license in hand. I cried for myself, selfish, selfish fingers pulling at my hair, sitting on gravel to keep the world from spinning off its axis, 40 bucks in my pocket for gas and pizza and that stupid, beautiful dog with its lush, invented coat, its glistening, vacant black eyes. No one was dead except my sweet Anya, Anya whose memorial I can't remember. But the altar at the foot of the limp paws grew in my mind, covered in flowers, carnations, black-eyed Susans, peonies, lilies, flowers I could name thanks to mom's garden. I was thinking of the child wrapped over the animal's limp body because I had decided there was a child after all. It must be a sin, I thought then, and still think now, to kill a breathing thing, a thing who was loved, even with only the breath of your imagination, even if a ridiculous fiction. Thank you for reading that. The, the depth of that piece, it just keeps going and digging and driving. Uh, hearing you read it is just, I don't know, so much power behind it. So thank you for reading that. Oh, thank you for letting me, my confession. <laughs> I'm going to read the writing prompt behind this poem just so our listeners can understand what the incarcerated writers were kind of working with. What we remember is a confessional poem. That means that Meisner uses the poem to express a deep psychological experience, in this case, the trauma of hitting a dog with her car. To help her cope with the pain, we see her honor the dog by creating a fictional world where the dog had a loving family. In a similar framework, write a poem about a time you cried. It could have been a time that you cried for joy or for sorrow. Either way, be sure to convey the emotions around the experience by telling the truths of the moment as well as weaving in some fictions. Could you read the untitled poem inspired by yours? My pleasure. It was dark on the road on the way to the house. I was going about 35 miles in the car. The only light on the way was three street lights that shine on the road. In the far distance, I saw a small dot on the road. What is that? I asked aloud. The object was getting closer when I recognized it as an armadillo. I thought to myself, I will just veer right once I get close to it. But once I got close, it looked like it wanted to get hit. I tried to avoid it, but over it I went. Crunch, said the armadillo, and squeal went my car after I stomped on the brakes. Just for our listeners who um, maybe don't have the poem pulled up in front of them, which again will be on our website if you want to access and see it in person, it's three stanza poems. They kind of grow for the first stanza's three lines, second stanza four lines, and the third and final stanza is six lines. And we kind of feel this emotional growth as we're you're reading the poem that kind of goes right along with the line growth. It's yeah, the the emotion in this poem is really hitting. You know what I love about this piece that really strikes me, Aaron, is is exactly what you're saying. We you know we 
we start far away and we get close to this creature, you know, with the author we're discovering, with the poems, what's happening. And I mean, armadillo is also just such an unexpected animal, you know, mm-hmm. it's really fantastic. But, but also, you know, the way the emotion works for me in the poem is that there's not a lot of emotion actually written in. It's a very straightforward poem. It's just saying what is. There's a little bit of questioning, right? Like it seemed like it wanted to get hit, but most of the poem is is observation and statement. And there's something about not revealing the emotion of the poet that imbues it with emotion. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. No. Definitely. I feel that exact same way. And a lot of it's how they craft the poem as well, too. I think looking at the final two lines, we get crunch said the armadillo and squeal line break went my car after I stomp on the brakes and just that line break of keeping squeal on the line with the crunch said the armadillo and having the armadillo not like crunch went the armadillo but crunch said the armadillo just something about giving that personification to that armadillo and keeping that squeal and tying it together like we we're pulling emotion out of that experience without them laying out and being like, here it is for you to see. It's like you're, you feel it without it just being like laid out in front of you. Yeah. And, and what an amazing use of onomatopoeia, which, you know, sometimes like you hear that word and you think of elementary school poems or something, but crunch and squeal and stomp, um, they're so evocative and they're, they're so simple and well-placed. Yeah. I, I think that line break is amazing as well. Yeah, kind of going back to what you're saying, I think it also comes from the line, it looked like it wanted to get hit. Like, mm-hmm. just like assessing that emotion by seeing this object in the road and knowing the person, the speaker of the poem, didn't want to do that. They didn't want to go on the path it went. But the thing, the armadillo was like, this is what needs to happen. I don't know, just something about that like stirs up a lot of emotion without having them, again, lay it out for us. And also, you know, it's a personification of, of you know, an armadillo, you know, courting its death, but it also could be read as a justification from the author and that mystery and are not really knowing is the author really interpreting that or are they making it easier for themselves to accept that they just ran over this animal? That uh, ambiguity is, mm-hmm. uh, is also no i totally agree and i think like as you mentioned earlier like the lack of like actual emotion in the poem leaves it so wide open to where you can kind of place yourself into it and see either path and they both feel completely right they both feel like either one could be the path to go down i love this poem and you definitely see the inspiration kind of inspired by yours but taken in a way that yeah um, I'm hoping you could next read your Growing Bold poem, and then we can read a poem inspired by it. Absolutely. Growing Bold. In fourth grade, my friend said her teenage sister wanted to tattoo her entire leg blue. We were lying on her bed, belly up, watching a sky created from a small machine, a smattering of man-made stars. I touched my pant leg. Underneath blue jean, my skin's tiny minefields, many fires, my bright red scales, my hideous disease. I couldn't shake the image hunting me down, then laying it soothe on me, cool. She was so cool. Just one leg, blue. Was it sadness? Was it beauty? 
borrowing the dust that fell over our mountains or their coat of trees made blue by distance the undisciplined eye. Was it acceptance or a disowning, flinging the inherited body back to the whispering palate of the primordial sea? Blue, brilliant, it was the blood boiled backwards, bold badge of raw, defiant, alive. The endless coil of my own possibility pricking, prickling, with new hairs, each beginning to stand. How I loved that one blue leg, coveted it, cold provocative, so undeniably bad, oh bad, so bad, so brilliant, so blue. <laughs> That repetition of blue throughout that poem, wow. <laughs> just hearing you read it just reminds me of why I enjoyed listening to that older album of yours. Just hearing you read your work and the motion behind it is, yeah, it's really beautiful. Thank you again. I have a lot of fun performing. It's, um, it's it, yes, when I said my work is, has, you know, intense lyrical sensibility, you'll really hear it in that poem. Mm-hmm. A lot of assonance, consonants, internal rhyme, repetition, yes, big time. Kate Meisner uses her poem, Growing Bold, to reflect on a childhood memory. Upon her reflection, she allows the reader to see the life lesson that she learned in that moment and how it has shaped the person she has grown into. Think of a childhood memory that is still clear in your mind. Think back to what little you knew back then and then how much you know now. Write a poem about that memory and share the life lessons that you learned in that moment. Yeah, if you could jump into Leap of Faith, that'd be amazing. Absolutely. Leap of faith. How can something look so inviting and terrifying at the same time? Gentle whispers urging me on, daring me to take a leap of faith. With my courage up, I make a mad dash only to step on a dime at the very edge of becoming a superhero. Aquaman, I imagine. It can't be that bad. Maybe I just might survive to see the next four candles on my favorite cake. This is it. I'm going through with it. Nothing can stop me now. No. Hold it just one second. Could I drown? No, that's it. It has to be done. I think, as I'm gliding through the air. Splash. I go under only to resurface with water and sunshine on my smiling face, brought about because of my leap of faith. I was just at the ocean this weekend for the first time this summer, and, um, uh, I was really conscious of how cold the water was and how like afraid I was to dive in. And I like loved to swim. And I was like, it's just go, just dive, just get in the water. You know, once you're in, it's going to be good. Just what are you afraid of? I've done it a million times. And so reading this poem <laughs> brings me right to that, you know, mm-hmm. really visceral feeling that that's so metaphoric for, for, for so many things in life. Um, I love the shape of this poem. It looks on the page a lot like mine, like kind of, skinny and uh in one you know it's not you know it's not justified but it looks you know kind of keeps within a a certain margin Mm -hmm. i love that there's a big gap between superhero and aquaman in this one line and it's just such a, a fantastic um internal dialogue that's being made accessible to the reader right one that's very familiar to all of us like i'm gonna do it no i'm not (laughs) <laughs> well, to step on, I, I make a mad dash. Wait, with my courage up, I make a mad dash only to step on a dime at the very edge of becoming a superhero. Woo! Yeah. What a line. 
the musicality too. Like I feel like they oh, felt yeah. the musicality in yours and like the lyricalness, like you feel it bounce around and it kind of like mimics the the back and forth. Like I remember being a child and like, all right, I'm gonna jump off and you know, the high dive into the water. You walk to the edge and you're like wait a second, what am I actually doing? Like, this is crazy. Like things just feel so much bigger and like, then you back up and just like the back and forth and yeah, just feeling that, that back and forth of like, should I do it? Should I not kind of feels like it's dancing with the musicality of the poem. Absolutely. And I love, I go under only to resurface of the water and sunshine on my smiling face, which, you know, is the reward of, of the risk. And I love a poem like this because you can read it on, you could take it at face value, you know, it's a kid jumping into the water. But of course, um, as I said, it, it, metaphoric, it, it feels like it could, it's also a metaphor for so many mm-hmm. of the difficult decisions that we face all the time. No, totally. I, I, I mean, as someone, I'm in an MFA program, so someone's like studying creative writing, like my mind's always going to the metaphor and just seeing like what's further there. And I feel like the, the writer knew that as well. Like it, it's more than just that memory. It's more than just like, am I jumping in? It's like, how can this go for more in my life? What else can it represent? I think it does such a beautiful job representing both the moment and the larger issues someone might face as they're growing older. I mean, I think that's, that's really what poems do when they're operating well. There's a kind of literal interpretation, then there's a a more universal interpretation that can be applied, uh, which I'm seeing, you know, across the poems from your Right. Yeah. I'm um, hoping you can read your final poem here, Feeling New Agey, for us. Oh, yeah. This one's fun. If I get to curse in it, I curse oh. a lot in my poems. I tried <laughs> to pick mostly non-cursing poems. Can I curse? Please curse, yes. But I think there's just like one soul shit in this. <laughs> Feeling New Agey. Vibrate low, moon throat, gargle soul. Debris up and down the canal of the body. I pay a woman with long braids to stretch my body like a canvas, press on the points that gleam with pain, the tiny needles sticky in skin, energy clinging like moths to light. I'm supposed to make a silly noise when I breathe out, like a horse, to swap my own chi with my tail, like a fly, to conquer heat and demons. She pets my name and the rain licks sweat from my hide. I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. Oh, exhaustion, says, it's okay. Come lay down and sleep with your mouth over mine. Oh, exhaustion, says, you spent all your anger for the rest of your life on a cheap tote bag with your own face on it. Oh, fuck me. Burn the fabric down in protest. When the smoke clears, hello, shadow. Fool, you are fighting a shadow all along. The shadow is the result of a tree. You hug the rough bark and the world rushes in, barrels backwards through the universe into your hands. Hello, crack of daylight squeezing goodness onto the cruelness of me. Hello, icing of light slicing me down to simple matter. Sometimes I admit to heal. I imagine a calm so placid I can finally stop feeling. I occasionally reach zen when I laugh at the insanity of my life and don't give a shit about anything for like five minutes. No, no, she says, sucking moons onto my back with the mouths of glass cups. What do you miss? Let us conjure. Do you know what I miss? Singing in the car. Let's jump in a car named after a New Mexican waitress and hightail it out of the city. 
a playlist, a pinch of gangster, a lot of jazz, pouring the New Yorker over Cuban, the clack clack of dancing heels punctuating the ceiling, disrupting sleep. I'll dig up a symphony of forgotten joys and open my mouth wide, the sharp ache of my voice squeegeeing the window clean. Yeah, that, fo- that poem is so fun. When you first sent me that poem, and I had a chance, I mean, I obviously like read through them just to kind of get a feel for them. And wow, just like, you know, the you talk about your your lyrical writing and just like the bouncing around and we get down later we talk about the lot of jazz and we get the the clink clanking or sorry i can't find it off the top yes i don't know it just feels like the that's the mood it's giving it's kind of like this bouncing this vibrancy to it yeah such a fun poem and like you know, it's so interesting because I I read that uh, I had to record it for uh, when it was published. They wanted a reading of it as well. And my friend who recorded me said, "This is such an intense poem." But I also think it's a fun poem with a lot of humor in it. But it's talking obviously about you know trying trying to feel better essentially in life, you know, mm-hmm. and all the lengths I'm going to, but but made very um, silly in a lot of ways, you yeah. know. And and there's a lot of self-deprecation in it. Um, so I'm glad you see the fun in it because I also experience it as a fun poem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, let me read the writing prompt here really quickly. In Feeling New Agey, Meisner walks the reader through the ways in which she tries to find peace within herself. We see her talk about the new self-care methods, but ultimately she ends up expressing the old ways in which she used to let loose and feel free, the ways she misses and wishes she could get back to. Playing off this idea, write a poem about the ways you participate in self-care. This means, what do you do to find peace within yourself? You can also use this poem to express the ways in which this self-care is different from what you did in the outside. So we have two poems inspired by... Well, I just got to give you some props, Aaron. That (laughs) prompt is, first of all, it's such a treat to hear prompts made off your own poems. I feel like I make those prompts all the time. So it's rare that I get that gift back. Yes. <laughs> so it, it really is making my life A. But B, like what a phenomenal and beautiful prompt that I like want to give other people now. Thank yes, you. Thank please you. Thank do. You. Yeah. Again, these prompts are on our website. If anybody wants to find them, are inspired by them, write their own poems. If we could get into the two poems here written by it, first we'll go with the untitled one. If you could read that for us, that'd be amazing. It's time to flow. Time to become one with the universe, a simple thing, since I'm a man who goes with the flow. But it's not simple. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's dark all around me, and I'm trying to find my way to nirvana, but I get lost. Too much on my mind. I should feel safe, like a child in a mother's womb. Instead, I feel like a man lost at sea in a storm. I should have the sensation of floating through the cosmos. With all these thoughts, I feel like I'm sinking in the ocean. My final thoughts wrapping around my legs like a block of cement. Beep, beep, beep. My hour of strife is over. Am I still lost, though? Sounds like about nine times out of ten that I sit down to meditate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was just talking to my father on the phone yesterday who's, who's taken up meditation again. He was like, it's so hard. I know, it's hard for everyone. And I feel like this, this poem really uh, puts it into context, you know, this, this kind of um, grasping or trying to find comfort in 
in being part of this universal whole, right? Like there's something about space that's both terrifying and like for me very comforting. Like, oh, I'm just a speck of dust. It's, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. You know, at the end of the day, like, who am I in the centuries and eons and the endless, you know, bath of time that we live in? You know, all that <laughs> existential stuff. And, and this really plays with the freedom that is being sought in that kind of existential pulling apart of your molecules, so to speak, to become like vibrational and, and the um, ephemera, but the very real ephemera that becomes very weighty of, of your invisible thoughts and how they can plague and really searching and kind of getting trapped in the net of your own psyche. I just think it's, it's it really nails it. I really, I really get it. Yeah, I <laughs> my mean, final thoughts wrapping around my legs like blocks and then oh, oh, keeping yeah. me tethered to the earth. And just kind of going off what you were saying, um, just for people who are listening. So the first two lines are, it's time to float, time to become one with the universe. Line break, a simple thing to do since I'm a man who goes with the flow. Line break, but it's not simple. Line break. Just that it's not simple, but it's not simple on its own line. After these kind of lengthy lines, kind of pulling things out, setting expectations, and then we get the reality kind of striking in. And that's mm. that's so much of kind of how it works when you're trying to as you mentioned you know trying to sit down and meditate and the reality of the world kind of weighing in and trying to block things out and just trying to like force uh things in your mind from you know keep swirling around and just trying to figure things out so yeah it just encompasses that moment so well Another thing that really stands out to me is the use of simile in this poem. The worlds that the similes take us to are so beautiful. Like a child in his mother's womb, like a man mm. lost at sea in a storm, like I'm sinking in the ocean, like a block of cement. Just the really like growing the pictures of this moment and kind of how it, you know, it kind of encapsulates this view of what meditation is you know all these images popping up and just kind of leading to other images and yeah the the similes really drew me into this piece and the the the, the sky earth you know we often think about when we look at the horizon where the sky meets the water right and this idea of kind of being upside down but in a similar context floating in the cosmos is something that we want but sinking in the ocean has a totally different context, even though it's sort of the same uh, action, right? We're mm-hmm. a, a body and atmosphere, and and, uh, and we're floating in it. But very, 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 very um, heaven and hell kind of imagery as well, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, this is maybe TMI about my life, but I've been taking scuba diving lessons recently and I'm just like experiencing what it's like to be kind of underwater and just kind of like when you have like the gear on and a mask and you're just like, you're just focusing on your breathing because you're thinking about like, you know, any wrong thing I could just start sucking down water, which is not what I want to do. But you know, it's just like being in that underwater space is probably a lot what it feels like to be you know, in the cosmos, just like the vastness of everything. And you just like thinking about things that could go wrong, but yeah, just kind of tying that together, just thinking about those moments and just like how it can help center someone. Wow. That I'm so glad you shared that. It's not TMI. 
That's so cool. Do you, are you a poet, Aaron? Is that what you write? Yes, I am a poet. Oh, I can't wait for your scuba diving. <laughs> I'm not sure if those exist out there, but I'm going to do research. And if none exist, then I'm definitely going to be the first ones to write some scuba diving poems. <laughs> I mean, even if they do exist, write them anyway, you know? Yes, do yes. Your, I want to read your scuba diving poems. Thank you. Um, I'm hoping we can get to the last one here. It's honestly one of the best poems, or I guess I should say, honestly, this is one of my favorite poems that we've had coming out of our classroom. It's called Lintel's Peace. Um, before you get into it, I just kind of want to describe to listeners what it looks like. It's kind of broken up into different numbered lines. So it goes from 1 to 23. Each line is a sentence long, and um, they all kind of tie together into one larger poem. But it's really beautifully written and um the how it's put together is also really beautiful so yeah just wanted to give that disclaimer so if you could please read that i love a numbered poem and it's worth mentioning that lentil's piece is peace is p-e-a-c one in the small place light never leaves two lentils mix in a recipe divined by unseen eyes and blinking machines Two, the seeds, strangers to each other, seek calm in the crucible of hot and cold. Three, out in the steel and limestone kettle, they'll simmer with other perilous, peppery elements. Four, each day serves a new stew with a heaping side of mead. Five, weeks in the pot pass, just blinks in the abyss. Six, Outside the stainless sieve lets in rain and waxing moon, but denies the wings of birds and men. Ooh. Seven. Seems our jackbooted chefs are particular about what gets into their slop and what gets out. Eight. The people porridge cooks too, roasting a nourishing piece in the boiling fray. Nine, a piece that bubbles out graphite totems and technicolor pineal dreams. Ten, apostles of Valhalla find it spinning epics of the slain and the almost gotaways. Eleven, would-be stars of the hardwood find repose in embarrassing King James five-point shots on a ten-foot rim. Twelve, reluctant Buddhas discover serenity in their hidden cheese while learning how to breathe again. 13 ex-Kansans seek the man behind the curtain with lamentations for their solace. 14 Hold'em kings hoard ramen piles while the vanquished addicts starve on in saturating games. 15 small white dots on Pacific ebony woods split the air announcing their fives and tens. 16 Swollen hands stink of blue rubber and sweat as the tranquil cage sponsors the sport. 17. Those grains finding no respite visibly disappear in the borscht, leaving the burnt shaft to the stove. 18. Sometimes furious blood and angry badges pour in before the ladle of our angels can save good seed. 19. Each ingredient seeking its place and taste in the covered cooker as outer space and time move on. 20. All look forward to that morrow when their lentil is gently sliced, ATW, 21, all the way out. 22. 
out in the calming bowls of familiar loves and lands, 23, and out onto menus only tomorrow's peace will know. Wow. This is a poem you gotta spend time with. Seriously, I yeah, I mean, I definitely encourage our listeners to please go on the website and read this poem and just see how it's crafted and appreciate the lines. It's, it's just so beautifully written. And... Um, just from working these characters. Yes. Sorry. I'm just no. like these characters. I mean, I, I can't get over reluctant Buddhas, you know, discovering serenity in their hidden cheese while learning how to breathe, breathe again. Ex Kansas sink the man, Kansans sink the, seek the man behind the curtain, hold him king's horde ramen. I mean, just this like kingdom of characters, Jack wooded chefs. It's fantastic and, and surprising uh, ways to describe people and things. Mm-hmm. A lot of surprise in the poems, surprise in the language. And in the imagery, the, there's so many surprises popping up that, you know, you, you read number 10 and then number 11, you would never predict what's coming, but still the worlds of 10 and 11 connect so well together. You know, that works from like line to line and, each line could almost be its whole poem on its own, but together they create this like really vivid poem. You're right. They are. They are. It's like 22 mini poems that are stitched together into the sort of tapestry that creates a scene um, through this thread of cooking, uh, the lentils. Um, there's even some words in here I don't. I didn't know. I'm not sure if I even pronounce them right. You know, <laughs> I gotta get the dictionary out. Uh, to be honest, I, I did too. I, I had to look up a few words. I mean, my vocabulary isn't the largest, but yeah. Fantastic, beautiful, and, and visceral, and visual, and uh, also, you know, musical in its own way. Um, I wish I knew the names of these poets. I, I understand why they're probably not on the paper, but I just want to tell the poets that um, I wish I could meet you. Your words really touched me. It was a real honor to get to bring them to life in my mouth. Um, I hope you liked how I read them. <laughs> I hope you heard their beauty. Sometimes hearing somebody else read your work can really wake you up to, you know, what's beautiful about your own work. So I hope that that is the experience um, for, for the poets who, who allowed me to read their work today. I mean, I mean, I've, I feel like I've gushed about it a few times, but the way you read really brings life to these pieces. So obviously I really thank you for reading them. And I'm sure once this episode gets back to the writers and they get to hear it i'm sure they would you know appreciate you know the way you interpret it the way you brought it into the world what a gift what a cool project you have going on here it's, it's incredibly special thank you so much I'm, i mean i'm really excited to be part of this and to be part of you know just finding this connection to get these writers into a larger community and hopefully that can help form some bonds in the future and please submit to the contest, the yes. pen writing contest. I mean, these are some competitive works. Yes, I definitely want to um, bring it into the classrooms and show them and talk about it and get the information out to them because they definitely, as you mentioned, these poems are so phenomenal. And just being able to have them, you know, send them out in the world and get them into a contest, I'm sure that would be, you know, feel great for them as well. I want to thank Kate Smeisner for sitting down with us today. I also want to thank the incarcerated folks in our program that shared their work with us, as well as Humanities Texas and the Burdine Johnson Foundation for making this project possible, 
A special thank you to our sound engineer, Nathan Parnell, and graphics designer, Jules Tunnell. Until next time.